Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Ethan Ryder. Today, I'm joined by Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ethan. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Pretty tired, but just chugging along. I'm also joined by Cole Bradley. Cole, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Ethan. I would like to wish Noah a happy birthday. And the only reason I found that out is because I stumbled upon his Twitter today and it said it was his birthday. So happy birthday, Noah. Well, I would like to say happy birthday to Noah as well. Maybe we should have gone to you first, Noah, but last but not least, birthday boy, Noah, how you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, really great. I wanna, Appreciate the shout. I would love to ignore Noah's birthday because um, he's young enough that uh, it's annoying me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still an occasion for me. Uh, yeah, no, it was a good day. How young? Uh been around for a couple decades now i guess so yeah kind of crazy nice job all right well hopefully that doesn't hurt chris too much because we got some important things to talk about around surrounding i should say asu football a couple things have bubbled up about ray anderson and his status with asu there's been some rumors that are going around chris what do you know about that maybe kind of led to people talking about ray anderson's status yeah, so actually, I was in um, the Bay Area on Friday, and I started to get, I got a couple calls from people um, who typically have per, pretty reliable information, I would say the vast majority of the time, reliable information, that uh, told me I should look into what's going on with Ray Anderson um, and his status. And so I did so, didn't really get to any uh anything concrete that indicated that uh, um, something may happen with the status as ASU's athletic director. Um, sort of forgot about it for a couple of days, really. I uh, didn't, didn't really do anything with it. But then Monday, um, I got another call from somebody who told me some specific information about the way that they learned about um, hearing that Ray Anderson was going to be out of a job and that, that in and of itself, this is a, you know, for anybody that's a journalist out there or aspiring journalist out there, um, even though that was in, in a way, firsthand information, it was firsthand information. Um, it, it wasn't, it didn't meet a threshold basically that you get from the experience of doing this job. And even though it came from somebody who has given me some, valuable information in the past that was very newsy and sometimes even that I reported based upon just this person. Um, so I looked into this further and wasn't able to get anyone else that had firsthand information about it. And, um, but you had John Wilner tweet about some potential news in the PAC 12, right? There ended up being no big potential news in the PAC 12 that came out today. So I, I think that was, good chance like the kind of thing that some 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 people might put out there in the event that then something happens that they're not first to report um and there were other reporters um including um at espn that were also looking into this um today maybe even prior to today somebody told me also um on friday that they were looking at somebody at espn was looking into it so um you know a lot of people started to just I saw it on Twitter and then my message board and the Wilner thing. And then, so basically I just, on our message board, I was like, Hey, if there is chatter out there about this, nothing that I've been able to confirm or we can't report anything, but it is out there. Um, and then I spent, you know, I'd already been working on this column that I wrote about Ray Anderson, which basically, you know, was pretty critical of his job performance at ASU and said that ASU uh, is past the, the point of where it should have already moved on from Ray Anderson for a bunch of reasons. Um, primarily, you hire your your friend as the head coach of the football team, and then uh, you have your worst season, worst start to a season since 1976. You have the worst attendance that you've had since the stadium expanded in the 1960s. Uh, you have the first game uh, in you know, 30 years, almost 30 years where the other team didn't score a touchdown and you lose and um, you have the 
17 months into an NCAA investigation that's really crippled your roster and contributed to all these things. And that's it's a pretty bad overlay of the reality situation. And so I said all these things, I was already writing the column. I was writing the column because it was, I felt it was the right time for it anyways, the loss of Stanford, um, just settling in on kind of the fact that this isn't going to be a successful season for ASU pretty clearly. And uh, a lot of the other sort of atmospherics around the program. And so um, we, we did see through ESPN, uh, it was reported that Michael Crow came out with a somewhat supportive statement of Ray Anderson. Nobody gives non-supportive statements of their athletic director before they make a move. So it doesn't necessarily mean that Anderson's going to be around for another year or years or whatever. His contract still has, I think, maybe four years on it, uh, three to four years. Um, but um, I think most ASU fans, at least pretty pretty healthy majority of ASU fans, feel like it's time to move on and that he also probably shouldn't be involved in the, the coaching search to replace Herm Edwards. Um, but I still haven't been able to drill down on exactly who's going to be responsible for making that hire. So that's, you know, subjects for additional podcasts. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing you just said there is, is a large majority of the ASU fan base probably is not happy with Ray Anderson. So any sort of rumor that got out there was bound to blow up in terms of people talking about this. So as you also said, this is definitely not the end of this story and we'll make sure to stay kind of as close as we possibly can be with any news that could come out. We'll make sure to keep everyone up to date on his status and what might happen through the future. But let's get to a little bit of news surrounding ASU football as well. ASU lost to Stanford and over the weekend and some news came out from it. So before we actually talk about the game, let's talk a little bit about the news that came from it. ASU had virtually an inability to score in the last three quarters of that game. And in light of that, there's been two kind of big news and changes throughout the program so far that we know of. Uh, Aguano is now going to call offensive plays, at least against Colorado, as far as we know. So that's one big change taking over those abilities or those responsibilities from offensive coordinator Glenn Thomas. And there's also now been stated that there is an open quarterback competition between Emery Jones and Trenton Borgay. So, Chris, we'll go to you first. What have you seen from just Aguano becoming that offensive play caller? And what do you think led to that decision? Yeah, so uh, pretty clearly, uh, ASU had a bad offensive performance at Stanford. You, anytime that you go, uh, almost three quarters, as you said, without scoring. Uh, they had uh, a touchdown in the first minute or so of the second quarter and nothing after that. Uh, Stanford had given up 40 points to three Pac-12 opponents and was 0-4 in the conference going into the game. So, um, And ASU had some other issues that we'll get into, but I, I think there were very questionable uh, things that have been going on kind of all season with Glenn Thomas. Um, he had a very slow sort of awareness and understanding of how to put his personnel in the best position to be successful. I think early in the season um, that sort of contributed to them kind of being behind the curve. I thought his, I thought Herm Edwards conservatism uh, just naturally, um, you know, kind of that hang around and play ball control and all that stuff kind of probably hurt ASU did hurt ASU in the first month of the season and then took some time to, to, um, to evolve to the more aggressive approach that Sean McGuana wanted to have offensively. We saw that kind of that trajectory of improvement against USC and then um, really kind of take off against Washington, which uh, of course involved a, a bad Huskies defense and Trent Bourget taking over at quarterback. Uh, continuing on against Stanford, I thought there were, and again, we're going to get into more details later, but I thought there were like, some very questionable things that we saw from what ASU was doing in that game uh, strategically with uh, play calling. And uh, Aguano was a, he was uh, at least part of the time, he was a play caller on offense at Chandler High School where the team won four state championships while he was the head coach. And uh, there has been this, 
this repetitive thing that he's talked about one week after the next about wanting to get more aggressive, wanting to play really aggressive and all these things. And then Monday he said, I'm going to be, and this is a quote, very, very, very involved in the offense moving forward on everything, including play calls, play calling. And I don't think any of us thought, oh, he's going to take over the, the play calling, even though he said, including play, play calling, right? Uh, but then today at practice, he was calling the plays in the only 11 on 11 period that we saw. And then I started to like look into it after practice. And pretty quickly, I learned from a couple places that indeed he had told the staff that he's going to be calling the plays. So I think it's a bold move, but it's also one where if he doesn't do that, how is he going to like sort of demonstrate his capacity at this point? Like that is going to be sufficient to impress Michael Crow or whoever that he deserves the job or at a minimum, isn't it sort of like an audition to everybody else, right? Even maybe ASU's, whoever ends up being ASU's head coach, that he might deserve a, a very prominent role on the staff, or maybe he will impress in a way that leads to somebody else considering him for an offensive coordinator position or an assistant head coaching position or something like that, right? Because he doesn't know he has a job anywhere. And isn't it kind of nice to be able to make a few hundred thousand dollars or more a year coaching college football rather than, you know, end up having to do something else or going back and coaching running back somewhere, which he I'm sure could do, but that's a lower pay grade on average. Right. So, um, I, I understand it. Like, again, like ASU's does the record's not good. The offense hasn't been good. He feels like they need to do more and be more. So have at it. And just real quick on a follow-up there before we talk about, quarterbacks is there anything and you may not have anything in this regard since you've only seen one 11 on 11 a period but based off of what he said and maybe what you've seen on those play calls do you expect any sort of changes that you can kind of certainly say right now with him calling plays well I I think Glenn Thomas um, you know he comes from a there's an NFL component to him which is run the ball do some play actions and sprinkling of some RPO stuff that works at the NFL level. I felt like in the first uh, five games, there were not enough quick game. Getting the ball from, from the quarterback's hands to the receivers in a hurry, right? Including the running back screens, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of screens that you could run across the whole width of the, and then uh, a lot of sort of like short in and out breaking routes, get the ball to motion guy, move the pocket stuff, get the ball to your fullback on some slips and tight end stuff. I didn't, I, I thought that there just wasn't enough of that. Uh, it improved against Washington, probably partly because of Trenton Borgay's uh, involvement and things that he likes to do and is maybe better at. Um, but then they had a regression very clearly, significantly against Stanford, where once again, it was sort of like all or nothings uh, and a lot, of, a lot of the time and uh, poor uh, first and second down um, progress to put them in position for better conversions. So, yeah, I think I just think that it was pretty like. No, I don't think anybody's going to look at this season and go, yeah, Glenn Thomas is doing a bang out job of, uh, you know, of coaching this offense. Right. So Sean Aguano, what's he got? What's, you know, what, what else, what's he got to lose? Yeah. All right. So let's move now on to the quarterbacks that you just talked about, Chris. And if Sean Aguano wasn't taking over play calling uh, for the offense, this would probably be the biggest story coming out of practice right now this week, but Trenton Borgay comes on after Emory Jones gets injured against Washington, has probably the game of his life. Team goes on a bye week. Emory Jones comes back to play Stanford, and it seems like the offense regresses, as Chris just said. And now an open quarterback competition that's open out there, and everyone knows now that it is actually a quarterback competition. Cole, we'll go to you first. What are your expectations with this quarterback competition? Do you think one player is going to start over the other? And just what do you think is going to kind of happen over this next week yeah Ethan I mean I wasn't at practice today so it's a little tough to say I'll have to sort of you know you know see 
what things look like uh, tomorrow at the time of recording this. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing for me that I, that I started to take away after, you know, it's, it's a small sample, but I mean, given Borgay's performance against Washington and just how, how, how much the offense as a whole kind of rallied around him and um, how ASU was able to, um, you know, really just completely outgun a Washington offense that was probably that I think a lot of us would agree was and still is far superior to ASU's attack um, was quite impressive. And honestly, that alone, I think, warranted at least a a splitting of series, kind of like Chris was talking about last week um, against Stanford. But obviously, the coaching staff made it pretty clear that they weren't really open to that. And I, you know, I mean, maybe I'm a little misguided in my mindset, but, you know, at this point, you're two and five, you know, I don't think there's too much more to lose. And I feel like, you know, you probably wouldn't really hurt yourself by having, you know, both guys sort of go out there and try and compete in game. I don't really see the issue with that. Is that going to happen? No, but I mean, based on, uh, you know, the observations Chris put out today, it sounds like Borgay probably has the early leg up on the, uh, on the competition here. And I think, especially against a pretty weak Colorado defense, uh, it personally, it would make more sense to start Borgay than it would to start Jones. All right. So Cole thinks maybe a splitting a series would make sense. Doesn't think that's going to happen. And maybe, is leaning a little bit more towards Borgay. Noah, what are your thoughts on this quarterback competition? I thought it was the right idea to bring Emery back and start him against Stanford um, to at least give him another look um, coming back from injury. He showed to be pretty good. We'll get into sort of the details of the entire thing. But as far as that game goes and how it progressed, it seemed like second half, rolls around and offense isn't chugging along as well as it started the game and feels like it's the point at which you try and test out a backup like Borgay, who was able to show some positives for you um, in the last time he hit the field. Now, as far as, you know, the bigger picture of this entire thing, as Cole tried basically put out there with a two and five record, uh, it makes sense to now try and, and figure something out elsewhere. Um, it's not like Emery, you know, is playing to the point where he's going to bring this team into, you know, contention towards the top of the Pac-12. That's not even really a discussion right now. And I feel like it, it would only be in some sort of situation like that where you would try and stick with your quarterback. Um, in this situation, they're really just looking for a spark. Uh, I think it sort of follows suit with the the feel of Aguano's decision to take over as play caller. They're, they're really just trying. It feels sort of in desperation maybe, but still trying uh, to find something to, to give some hope to, to the team itself, to the fans and everyone watching this team go out and play football every Saturday. So especially against Colorado, Cole mentioned that as well. And it's a good place to start for Borgay get him back out there against the weaker defense could potentially be a prime opportunity for him to get a confidence boost, play well, uh, get some results out there, and then essentially build up uh, into some of their, you know, the games that follow that, which aren't as, um, which aren't as favorable, you know, against the UCLA's, the Washington States, the Oregon States, you know, so it, it feels like if they're going to make a change, uh, as big as switching out their quarterbacks, uh, it would be this week. And, you know, for as bold a move as the Guano, you know, change to play caller was this sort of feels like it should meet uh, that change and adjustment um, feels like it's due. Well, Chris, it seems like Cole and Noah are leaning towards Borgay and the reason that there's not much to lose. What are your thoughts on the situation? Yeah, uh, I could talk for an hour on just this alone, um, but I will condense this as much as possible. Uh, I think uh, by the end of the third quarter, second, second, ASU second drive of the third quarter, I think pretty clearly ASU should have had Borgé on the, the field. And I said last week, hey, say whatever you want about, you know, player losing his job to injuries and all this stuff, but 
you could have started, still started Jones, uh, maybe even gone with him the first two drives. Then you could have gone with Borgay for a drive, see how he did. Uh, then kind of just played it from ear, from the, played it by ear from there. I think that they should have done that. I think you would have got a sense within the game. All this stuff about you like to get all this stuff that they said about you want to get into a good rhythm with your quarterback play. Well, what did that actually get ASU? They scored 14 points in the first 20 minutes of the game. They didn't score anything after that, right? So that kind of defeats the argument of why, why the real whole reason you did that and the value of doing that. And by the way, didn't uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Borgay came in uh, in the second quarter against Washington and he proceeded to light it up. So how do you know he wasn't going to go out there and do well? And the thing that I want to say that I think is in defense of Emory Jones, which is very important, is ASU's, and we're going to talk more about the game, but ASU's O-line was bad. They had a very poor performance, especially with protections, but even in the run game. Okay, but what we saw from Trenton Bourget is that he is great at getting the ball out more quickly than Emory Jones against Washington. Emory Jones is more prone to hold and search in the pocket. And the hold and search leads to sacks and negative plays. And Isaiah Glass probably had his worst game in pass pro and Chris Martinez playing left guard because you don't have Ladarius Henderson. That was an issue at times. And even Ben Scott got beat on an important rep. Uh, on a, on a, on a third and five or ASU inexplicably ran the ball. Sorry to get ahead of uh, ourselves again, but the, the, so Emory Jones was done no favors, I think by play calling by some of the things that happened around him, but also I noticed very clearly that he wasn't seeing early play development in the game, especially in the second half that guys were coming open or why he should be going, throwing the ball to certain places and hold, hold. And then all of a sudden you're scrambling when you shouldn't be scrambling. You're, you're throwing the ball, you're getting sacked. And that, those things operationally kill you. They, they just kill you. And so he had some very good throws in that game, right? I mean, that, you know, we'll get into it. But overall, I just think there's no reason. Noah said it. It's an energy injection, right? It's a let's do something. Let's do something to kind of change it up. Why not? And that Sean Aguano is going to be the play caller against Colorado, but it was Sean Aguano's responsibility to say, "Hey, we kind of need to mix things up here. Let's let's throw in Trent Borgay and see what happens by the end of the third quarter after you haven't already scored in twenty minutes of game time by that point." That's so. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even in that regard, there's nothing to lose. If, if you start Trenton Borgay and he doesn't do well, you just go back to Emory Jones and you're back to square one anyway. So it's something that seems to be a pretty clear answer, but we'll see what the actual coaching staff and everyone comes to uh, once they end up playing Colorado. But let's talk about the game that we've mentioned a couple of times already. ASU lost 15 to 14 on the road against Stanford. ASU is now two and five on the season, one and three in the Pac-12. This is also the first time ASU has lost when its opponent didn't score a touchdown since a 6-3 loss against USC in September of 1984. So it's been a while. It has been a long time since this has happened. You don't see it very often. 15 points from Stanford on five field goals. So isn't isn't that when Noah was born? 1984. <laughs> I believe you're a little off, Chris. Uh, but no, we'll 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 bad. see. I mean, maybe maybe listeners can do the math and we'll figure out later on the board or something. But I think you're a little off. I I only did the math based off of the last time that a team did that. So I have no clue about the yeah. thing on that. Pro not by more than 20 years off though. So it's pretty close. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough, I guess. But anyways, let's let's talk a little bit about the specifics from the game. ASU's offense. You guys have already talked about it a little bit. Started off pretty good. Two touchdowns and then seemingly went completely off the grid and could not figure out a way to drive down the field. Could not figure out a way to score touchdowns. All of it seemed to go awry. There was some good. There was some bad. Noah, or sorry, Cole, we'll go to you first. What did you see from ASU's offensive performance? Well, I mean, quite the, quite the you know, polar opposites considering how they started. I think, you know, I mean, they had a solid first quarter and then coming out into the, you know, into the second quarter with the, with the Badger touchdown on, a, you know, 
quite frankly, a beautifully placed ball by Jones, um, you know, to put them up, you know, two scores at that point, or I think it was one score, um, you know, it was such a fast start. And so I think, I, I think everybody, um, you know, was probably, you know, sort of in the mindset of like, oh, you know, maybe this is, you know, maybe ASU, you know, figures it out this week, or, you know, maybe this is a get right week for them. But, you know, I think then it's just steadily, you know, just declined. And then once the second half rolled around, I mean, they punted on four of five, uh, you know, four of their five second half drives. Um, and, you know, it was quite, um, you know, it was just quite lethargic um, overall from from Glenn Thomas and, and Emory Jones as well as is to blame for that. You know, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier this week um before guano's press conference but you know there were times where jones held onto the ball far too long um you know he didn't do a good job of evading pressure um again as chris said the offensive line did not have a good game that didn't help certainly um asu didn't run the ball as effectively against a stanford run defense that has been pretty bad this year too um so all those things were pretty uh were pretty telling and then you know outside of that after such a good first half, Elijah Badger was shut down in the second half as well. I think he had only one catch, um, but I mean, it, it was just an extremely um, poor performance. And I think, I think that, you know, really spoiled what was such a great defensive performance, which we'll obviously get to here later, but um, that, you know, anytime you, you lose to an opponent who, you know, only is able to, you know, generate points on field goals. I think that's just an overall, you know, I mean, it's just embarrassing. I don't really think there's any other way to put it, but, um, you know, Guano was clearly not happy about it. And I think that's what ultimately led to his decision, um, you know, earlier this week uh, about calling plays. So I, I mean, those were the biggest things that stood out to me, but um, yeah, I mean, anyway, slice it, it was pretty embarrassing performance, I'd say. Yeah, and I mean, when it, it's embarrassing when the last time it's happened was per Chris Cartman's source, it was Noah's birthday when he was born. So that that's pretty embarrassing. But anyways, Noah, let's let's go to you. As Cole just said, there was a lot of good at the beginning, and then everything stalled out. So from your point of view, I mean, maybe what led to them looking probably the best the offense has looked all season for a little spurt of time, and then completely shut down. They really did look like they had a lot figured out. Um, they, the first drive was actually a three and out, but then they came back with two consecutive touchdown drives. And I thought, you know, for one, they were able to really put forth a balanced attack. Uh, Cole mentioned how for the game as a whole, the rushing attack didn't really sustain itself, but at least on those couple of drives, they were able to get good positive gains. Uh, out of their running backs. And I thought that Jones, you know, really early on was able to rely on Elijah Badger uh, as his go-to weapon through the air. If I'm not mistaken, that first touchdown drive, um, 44 yards of it was passes to Badger. Uh, I think it was two catches uh, for 44 yards. And essentially that set the tone, it seemed like, for a huge game for Badger. It did turn out pretty big overall, um, although it did stall out in the second half, but it just felt like they were really figuring out where the playmakers were early. And you just thought that if they continue to really funnel it through those channels, Xavier Valaday, Daniel Ngata, Elijah Badger, right, really relying on those guys, it, feel, it felt like they were going to be able to carry that offense through for a more complete performance than it ended up uh, being Elijah Badger after the game mentioned in the second half how maybe he was more bracketed uh, a little bit, you know, getting more attention from the Stanford secondary, uh, which, by the way, came into the game as one of the better uh, units in the Pac-12, the fewest passing yards given up among Pac-12 teams in entering that game. Uh, and he also did acknowledge, at least to some extent, that just sort of the game plan, the play calling felt a little different. Um, and so different away from, you know, what we saw early on those couple of drives, funneling it to the playmakers and, and maybe having to, to go a different direction, I think definitely led um, 
to some, you know, to some failings on the offensive side of the ball. There was definitely key moments that, you know, obviously did its due in terms of really pushing back uh, against that offense. You know, Emory Jones, he had an interception off the top of my head. I remember it um, in that first half. And it was after one that already got reversed. And it was tipped off of one of the defensive linemen by Stanford. But that would have been a pick regardless, it seemed like. He didn't see the linebacker in under zone coverage. And it was just a bad pass. You know, it, it felt like things were just slowly spiraling bit by bit. Because as was already mentioned, early second was essentially the point at which that sort of momentum had stopped. And then it went downhill uh, gradually for the rest of the game. Chris, what can you add about what was a rather complicated offensive performance. Yeah. Um, I, I want to reiterate the offensive line did a, did, a, did a poor job in this game. And that, that goes back to Glenn Thomas, not necessarily being able to quickly process what's going on with this personnel and figure out how to adjust uh, a very good indication of that is how all or nothing AAC was in the passing game. In this game, so for example, you look at the uh, yards per catch averages. Elijah Badger nineteen point seven, Brian Thompson eighteen point three, Geo Sanders twenty point five. Those are only guys on the uh, on the team that have multiple catches. Well, what does that tell you, right? It's like they're throwing the ball wet, way down the field. Where's all the other types of throws that? everywhere else that you can do. Uh, and, and, and how come Daniel Ngata and Xavier Valade combined for two catches? And that's it. And there's no tight end that has a catch. And there's no fullback that has a catch. And then you had uh, Cam Johnson came off the bench and had one catch. That's it. That's it. And they had 227 passing yards by Emory Jones, right? So what, what it tells you very obviously is ASU's getting very little, if anything, in run replacement passes. And when you have a shaky offensive line performance, you don't need your quarterback holding the ball a lot, try to get the ball down the field. And ASU didn't run the ball nearly well enough, which also, by the way, was a product of some of the offensive line issues that they had. Right. So everything about this game screamed for more creative ways to get the ball quickly from the quarterback into the hands of a receiver. Anybody, any receiver, including tight ends or running backs. Didn't happen. That's a failure. And that is primarily a failure on Glenn Thomas. It's also a failure on Sean Aguano, who's monitoring and advising Glenn Thomas. It's also a failure on Emory Jones because there were there were several plays when uh, there were those types of routes that were accessible to him and he didn't see them developing pretty clearly. There's one crossing route. He ends up, you know, uh, eating the ball. Somebody was open, probably would have been a first down. Uh, and then I'll also say that ASU got to the cusp of field goal range multiple times and then started making really questionable decisions, running the ball on third and five. They said it was an RPO after the only RPO option was a little, uh, screen into the boundary where the ball would have been caught behind the line of scrimmage. And, but it was a handoff up the middle. And that was with a bad offensive line performance, immediately following a play that was on second down where, where Xavier Valade ran to a brick wall, right? They didn't run the ball inside successfully in the game. So why are you thinking, oh, this is going to be available for us? And Stanford knows, oh, ASU's probably going to try to get a few more yards here and then kick a field goal, right? Um, there were good throws in the game by, by Jones. He hit Geo Sanders on two beautiful balls. He hit Brian Thompson, one that was great. He hit uh, Badger on the touchdown. That was maybe the throw of the season by him and multiple other good throws that he made. So he made good passes. He also missed things. And he also, you know, had, you know made some mistakes. But I don't, I don't think that this game – was primarily his fault. The quarterbacks get a lot of blame. I think this game was primarily the fault of the de decision to only play him a quarterback and Glenn Thomas's game planning slash play calling, particularly in consideration 
of what was going on uh, with uh, Stanford and also with his offensive line. And, um, and so, you know, coaching, I think, has played a significant role in uh, ASU's losses this season and last season. Um, and more an outsized role of what should ordinarily be the case is what I would say. You know, usually it's like, okay, the teams are pretty equally matched uh, or maybe the other team is slightly better and then they win the game and there's, or there's like a turnover here or there and there's a you know, one or two plays in the red zone and, you know, whatever. But this season and last season, coaching has really, really let ASU down. All right. So coaching, letting ASU down on the offensive side and, and good at the beginning and then a lot of bad, but also, as Chris said, there was some good through some throws, maybe and a couple other things. Let's head over to the defense, though. The defense was, I guess you could argue, some good and some bad as well. ASU defense held Stanford to five field goals, as we talked about, but and, and they also held him to no touchdowns, which is a pretty big deal for a defense. But they also gave up some very long drives, had some bad penalties. So there was definitely a lot of bad to come with holding Stanford to no touchdowns. Cole, what did you see from the ASU's defensive performance? Yeah, the biggest thing was just how, I mean, and it had a lot to do with, you know, just how weak and incompetent Stanford's offense is. But, you know, just their performance in plus territory. I mean, there was, it felt like almost, you know, seemingly every drive Stanford was able to get across the 50 and then ASU just kind of clamped down and, and, and figured things out. You know, there was a Jordan Clark pick, um, you know, there was a couple other big plays, um, but Stanford also shot itself in the foot a couple of times. I mean, you know, the biggest thing that pops out to me was in the second half, um, you know, when the holding call on, uh, I forget the offensive lineman's name, um, basically, you know, nullified their only, what would have been their only touchdown of the day. It was a 16 yard touchdown pass, um, you know, that didn't count, um, because of a holding call. So I, I, I think, I think those definitely played a part in it as well, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think the defense definitely had, um, as good of a performance as it could have had, you know, it had a, you know, back against the wall multiple times, and it got off the field and, you know, surrendered five field goals. That should, again, be enough, um, you know, of a performance to, you know, allow your to leave the door open for your offense to, you know, potentially win the game for you. And that wasn't the case this time around. Um, the penalties were pretty glaring in the second half. I can think of the personal foul on Corey Bethley on a late hit that, you, you know, you just can't, those can't happen. Um there was another one. I forget who it was on. Those things just can't happen, especially late in games um, when you're starting to see, okay, offense is not, you know, getting things done. We need to do everything in our power to make sure that we're playing our part, you know, from a defensive perspective. And that just wasn't the case. Um, you know, the other thing I think that definitely stood out was, uh, and they, you know, Donnie Henderson talked a little bit about it last week, but um, they definitely, you know, mixed up were a little bit more aggressive um, with their blitzes and their strategy. Um, you know, they had a season high in sacks. Uh, so that was big. We saw some, you know, some, some creativity in the way, um, you know, ASU twisted at the line and, you know, sent some different blitz packages and stuff like that. So I think that was also encouraging. Um, but, you know, <laughs> Again, the biggest takeaway for me is when you're giving up 15 points and you're still somehow losing a game, I, I think it's just way more telling of the other side of the football um, than it is with yours. So ASU's defense did all it could, I think, in this one, but it just didn't, you know, just didn't work out in the end. Noah, what are your thoughts on the defensive performance? The play that sticks out in my mind that is at least, to me, the biggest indicator of Donnie Henderson's increased willingness to blitz uh, and risk some man-to-man -man matchups was um, I believe it was their final defensive play outside of the kneel down to end the game when they had that final uh, third down stop to give ASU one last shot. Uh, Ed Woods was able to essentially come off from his cornerback spot unblocked. Uh, I think Trevez Moore essentially occupied that tackle 
and just made a play. Um, there was a lot of energy I felt like that was, you know, drawn from that sort of play call. It showed, you know, a sort of boldness that uh, wasn't necessarily, you know, present. Um, it wasn't really. Hey Noah. Ever- hey Noah, how many, uh, how many corner cat corner blitzes had you seen from ASU all season prior to that? <laughs> how many, how many yeah. did any of you have you? I haven't seen? seen. I haven't seen. I don't yeah, know zero. if you ran a single one. Yeah. Zero. And then the first time they do it, you know, blindside. Yeah. Yeah. And it was huge, right? I mean, it, it marked, you know, it marked the, the third down stop, gave ASU the ball back, didn't turn out their way in the end. But in that situation, the defense did its job. Now, as far as the secondary goes, because I felt like the size that Stanford's wide receiving core brought uh, even without Michael Wilson, who was their leading receiver, uh, was quite daunting uh, potentially for ASU secondary. Um, but, you know, they had players um, like Roe Torrance, you know, came in, was essentially, you know, highlighted for his height, length, size at the cornerback position. And this was sort of the this was the game for him to really show off how that's able to be, you know, a really beneficial point for this defense. Uh, he had three of the team's eight pass breakups. Uh, in my mind, that's a ton. Um, I don't, off the top of my head, recall what the numbers were in each of the previous games. But overall, you know, that's just a number that I point to to basically say this secondary had one of its better games, uh, if not the best uh, of the season so far. And that comes off of a bye week that followed, you know, a a really, you know, improved performance, I thought, in terms of the passing game. Against Michael Penix, they were able to hold him to no passing touchdowns. I felt like the round game in that particular contest was more of the bane to ASU's defense than anything else. And so they were able to build off of that, um, those improvements, and and go into Stanford and, and, you know, take even greater strides. Um, Jordan Clark's, I like when I saw his interception, uh, much different from the one he had against Washington, right? The tip off the, you know, an offensive lineman's helmet and you essentially just, just run under it and, and take it to the end zone with no one in front of you. And this, in this case, the interception showed pretty great skill uh, and anticipation. I felt like he just, it didn't even look like he was in play to deflect that ball. And he just had a sort of break that uh, at least I haven't really seen from him, um, seen him display very often. So I thought it was also a, quite a coming out game for Clark as well. You know, those two Torrance Clark, the entire secondary as a whole collectively played well, but I, I would probably highlight those two uh, and their performances, especially. Chris, is there anything else? you can add about the defensive performance and what might be able to be taken from it? So, Noah, the, why do you think the reason was that ASU uh, had so many passes defended? Uh, I think the, the probably because ASU played more man coverage. And Stanford has more bigger receivers, right? So you're going to be in more jump ball contested situations also. But it's really the style of ASU's defensive backs. What do they tell us? Like, they were basically coming out of their shoes. They were so excited about having the opportunity to play more man coverage. This is what Roe Torrance – Roe Torrance was, like, begging. He's like, this is what I like to do. Let me, let, me, let me get my hands on you. Let me get my big hands on you at the line of scrimmage and press you up and, you know, and take, take, take you away. I mean – and then he goes and he has three passes defended. We're getting, getting his hands on balls, right? Ed Woods. Ed Woods played great. That was maybe the best starting performance by anyone other than, like, the one Isaiah Johnson performance that he had. Uh, that was really good earlier in the season. Uh, Jordan Clark. What I think is happening is he's starting to, from film study, he's starting to see situations where uh, the route development is giving away what the play is going to be. And then that's why he's breaking on the ball the way that he is, which when he has the ability and time and space to read things, that, that works out well for him. He, in the last few weeks, is making a strong case for NACU's most improved defensive player this year, I'll say, because I was not impressed really by 
by last year, kind of what he did. Um, I think that there were some there was there was great things, and there was also missed opportunities in ASU's defense more broadly. Um, they did a pretty good job against the run. I thought Merlin Robertson maybe had his best game. He was he had a good solid performance. Kyle Soley, solid performance. Um, the, the the issues though were in the second half, especially the third quarter. Um, they ASU gave up too long of drives for the starting position that uh, that Stanford was in. Stanford started went from the half like it's it's like half yard line and then went all the way down to scoring position then had a penalty and then still got it back into scoring position to kick one of the one of its field goals had over 100 yards in the quarter alone that's not a good quarter defensively even though okay they didn't give up a touchdown not a good quarter to give up 100 something yards to Stanford fourth quarter uh, I thought Stanford also moved the ball a little bit too successfully when your offense isn't doing well and in a game against a team where uh, in which you, you, you have fewer possessions, which we know that's typically the case with Stanford due to style of play and everything, field position becomes a huge thing, right? So field position requires you to be able to get stops earlier. And ASU wasn't able to do that to get short field situations. ASU actually moved the ball decently, you know, okay on offense, but didn't move the ball literally 10 yards on multiple possessions enough to be able to be successful, but had the defense been able to get earlier stops, that would have been a difference. Now, I'm not saying that it was the defensive performance that cost ASU the game because in no way, shape, or form was it. Um, and it was a it was probably a B to a B plus game by ASU's defense at worst. Um, and Donnie Henderson, hey, it worked out, Donnie. You brought some more blitzes. You know, you knocked Tanner McKee off his spot. You rattled him a little bit. You know, you got maybe it's okay to go ahead and, and do a lot more of that stuff earlier on and let, you know, like let your balls hang, man. Let it, let, let you know, you know, just, just let it go, man. It's okay. And uh, Sean Aguano endorsed it, right? He said, I want to be really aggressive. Okay. You want to be really aggressive? Let's throw some cat corner blitzes, right? Let's do some different things. Let's get some amoeba fronts going and you don't know who's, who's, who's uh, pressuring and who's dropping back. Let's drop a defensive lineman or defensive end back. They started to do a little bit of that against Washington. I saw it. He tackled dropping back when they were uh, thinking that Washington would run some of these shallow crosses and stuff like that. Okay, I'm seeing it. But ramp it up. Hit the, get that button. Dial that button that drops the balls even further. And just go ahead and, 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 and let it happen, you know? Um, I like to joke around with Donnie because we have very interesting press conferences on Monday. He makes some jokes about me thinking they don't play defense. He talks about listening to our podcast, talks about watching uh, some of the source post-game shows and stuff like that. He's doing some winking and nodding at uh, some of the other reporters and talking about me during the press conference. So I'm like, I, I'm, I'm having some fun. It's not that I think, and, and listen, Here's, let me just go, this is, sorry, a little tangent. There's, there's, there's two schools of thought with uh, a defensive scheme or even an offensive scheme. There is, we're going to do a limited number of things, but we're going to do them so great that it doesn't matter if you know what we're doing. That's, that's one approach. And then the other approach is we're going to do a whole bunch of things and we're not going to maybe do anything great, but, but you're not going to know what we're going to be doing exactly. And that's going to make it hard for you in some ways. Well, in the first half of the season, ASU's defense, Donnie Henderson, they were trying to do a few number of things great, but they weren't doing it great or anywhere even close to great. And they were losing games as a result of that. And that's why my criticism was, if you're going to do a few limited things great well a it better be what's best suited for your personnel which is the road torrents let me lock you up at the line of scrimmage by the way and woods locked people up at the line of scrimmage in that game jordan clark was physical for being an undersized guy uh i also thought um uh uh the asu safeties did a good job against uh against chris edmonds in particular against uh benjamin urasek defending him a big body tight end all things considered right so you have to go, okay, what does our personnel do well? If we're going to do a limited number of, of things, let's 
make sure that we're going to be able to do that great. But if we can't, meaning, hey, we're going to chill back, play a lot more cover three, play some quarters coverage, but then the other team's catching the ball in front of you all the time, and you're not getting to the quarterback ever, you're not generating enough uh, negative plays, still how many uh, turnovers they generated on, on forced fumbles? Zero, I think, this season. That's a crazy number after seven games when you think about it, right? You have to be able to say, okay, maybe we need to do more things and not do anything great, but do more things, try to keep opponents guessing what we're going to be doing. That's my thought process. It isn't that Donnie Henderson doesn't know how to coach football. You know, he's forgotten more football than I know, right? But I can see when you're not doing something great and you're trying to do a limited number of things great and it's not happening for you. And maybe it's not what's in the best interest of your, or what your personnel is necessarily best suited for. Rant over. All right. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was holding on to this. Pause, Chris. Roe Torrance said, let me put my paws on them in the preseason. And that was like the the terminology that just showed that he was itching to, to have a game like that against Stanford. So, well, they kept saying, no, they kept saying, hey, that, that's our identity, you know, to play, to play <laughs> press man. And, and I'm saying to myself, wait a second, if that's your identity, how come that's not what you guys are doing at all? <laughs> why, why you got cushions and everybody's catching the ball outside the number seven yards? Like, uh, there was a disconnect there, right? Listen, you know, listen to your players, evaluate what they are probably best suited to be, to be doing, and then try to do that great. And if you can't do that great, well, then go ahead and throw a bunch of different things at opponents and try to, you know, keep them off balance. Yeah, I mean, as you put it, you talked about it a little bit, the Jeff and other shoes. I don't know if I've seen that certain group of players as excited as we saw them. Just talking about them going into this more aggressive style of defense, which I think says a lot about kind of how they felt about changing that style. But let's talk a little bit about that style being more aggressive, as Iguano has talked about as well. Moving forward, next up for ASU is Colorado, but there's five more games in the season. Cole, we'll go to you first. What are your feelings surrounding the season, expectations, outlooks, just based off of the fact that they're changing things up, getting more aggressive? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much, you know, this weekend's really going to say, uh, you know, regardless. Of, I mean, if it's a loss, that's going to say a lot, um, but I doubt that's going to happen. Um, I, I'm still sticking. I mean, I'm probably swaying a little bit more again in the direction of four and eight. Um, I mean, we'll see, you know, how things go. Uh, but I, I think I think this was a. I think the Stanford game was one that ASU really needed because, I mean, I think, I think best case scenario was a three game, you know, winning streak coming back home um, to play, you know, uh, what is it? UCLA, I think, um, you know, I think was probably, you know, to be back at 500 was probably like, you know, a, you know, something that had to have been on, on players and coaches minds you know, coming out of the bye, like, Hey, we have a chance to do this. Um, and that, you know, that kind of bodes well for us and our chances, um, you know, moving, moving through the rest of the season. Um, so I have to feel like they have, you know, a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder moving forward because of it. Um, you know, take all your anger out on Colorado, you know, if you're ASU, I think that's, I mean, I, I think if there's a game to do it, it's against Colorado. They're, you know, if they're not the worst team in the FBS, I really don't know who is, um, you know, it might be Colorado state actually, um, funny enough, but you know, those are the, those are kind of the things that, um, you know, you have to use to sort of fuel you the rest of the way. And I think, um, you know, Aguano being as bold as he is by deciding he's going to call the offensive, you know, you know, be the offensive play caller that might actually lead to some, you know, positive results, um, you know, down the stretch, it, it, you know, if it's only limited to just Colorado, then, um, you know, that's one thing, but I think at the end of the day, this might be, you know, the right kind of shakeup that they need, um, you know, moving forward. So we'll just see what happens, but I, you know, I, I don't think I, my expectations really change at all from, from this past weekend. 
Noah, what about you? It's a more aggressive team. Maybe things are changing in that regard. You talk about a jolt of energy, possibly, if Trenton Bourget is, is behind center. What do you think about what the rest of the season might look like? I'm really curious to see what an Iguano offense, like fully with him calling plays, is going to look like. Because he can't really go through a pet press conference without using the word aggression, aggressiveness, or some other synonym to really relay how much he really wants to amp up the intensity and sort of the boldness behind, you know, both units, offense and defense. Uh, against Colorado, it's going to, I feel like it's going to be like, oh, he's a genius now because you're playing against this defense that's not that great. Uh, I anticipate them to have a good performance, uh, you know, a bounce back against uh, that team after a Stanford loss in which they only scored 14 points. And, you know, the numbers as far as like not scoring for the last 44 plus minutes of that one. So it's going to be sort of like to really stabilize, I think, potentially uh, before a pretty tough stretch of games. I'm still going to leave the projection uh, at five and seven for the season. Um, after a Colorado win, that would make them three, uh, wins and then UCLA, Washington state, Oregon state, and Arizona. There's no team that's really like unbeatable of that bunch. Um, I mean, it's the PAC 12. It just feels like, you know, any team can really win on any given night. They're playing UCLA in Tempe, uh, you know, make, make of that what you will. Same thing with Oregon state. Uh, and then they go down in Tucson. As Chris has corrected me in the past on a, a previous podcast, the intensity for that is is high regardless of the situations for either program. So as far as, you know, what this team is going to look like four or five weeks from now, I can't say definitively, but I really just think that the tone setter is going to be this weekend against Colorado. Uh, and then they'll move from there. If uh, they see some success offensively, which I, I feel like it's, it's bound for them, uh, then – you know, you can try and pull some momentum from that and uh, very likely to see Aguano, you know, stay in the offensive coordinator type play calling role uh, for, you know, subsequent weeks. Chris, thoughts on the rest of the season? Well, look, the, the coaching hasn't been good enough. ASU should have a better record at this point in time. I think I probably underestimated the degree to which coaching would keep, prevent them from winning a couple games. Um, so you look at the talent, did Stanford look like it was a much more talented team than ASU? Definitely not to me. Um, other opponents at ASU's lost to certainly Eastern Michigan, uh, not more talented than ASU. So, um, uh, ASU shouldn't lose to Colorado, but are we going to have a whole bunch of confidence in, in predictions this week? I'm not, you know, um, I pick ASU to win, but it's not like I'm going to go be like, Hey, yeah, everybody, you should guys, you guys should go hammer that line, you know, or the money line or whatever. I thought there'd be, I thought there'd be more points against Stanford. Like there should have been more points in the game. Am I wrong? Like cheap, like, uh, I mean, that, that was crazy, but, um, Look, I think the ASU is probably going to win. I still think ASU is probably going to win another couple games. Maybe even three games. I, I don't know, two or three. Uh, and, um, but man, like ASU, ASU should have already won two games and it lost this year at a minimum, you know, if not more. So. So outlook for the rest of the season from Chris virtually sounds like speechless, not really sure what to expect because there's been a lot of unexpected so far this season with ASU football. But as always, we'll keep you up to date on whatever happens for the last five games of the season. And in terms of Stanford, if you want to know a little bit more about what went down in that game, 10 takeaways, make sure to keep an eye out for that. Uh, also, we'll be moving on to Colorado as we just talked about. Colorado first look, also keep an eye out for that on the website. And then as Chris just alluded to our premium podcast, 
will be going up later this week with predictions and previewing that Colorado game. So that's most of the football stuff we'll have as we talked about. If anything, with Ray Anderson and stuff like that around the program, we'll continue to keep you up to date on stuff regarding that, as well as kind of updates regarding Sean Aguano and his play calling that we've seen throughout the week. If there's anything we can kind of conjure up from what we see from practice. Also make sure to be on the lookout for some preseason men's basketball content that'll be coming around. That team is not expected to do much for media throughout the country, but Bobby Hurley and the team has already expressed discontent in the fact that they have not been in any of those rankings and stuff along those lines. So they should be a fun team to look out for. And there's been some hockey coverage as well. So we'll keep you up to date with the hockey team over there at the new Mullet Arena. Those have been some pretty fun outcomes and, and experiences there with that new arena so make sure to stay up to date to all of our content as we've got a lot of stuff coming your way but that'll be it for this edition of the sun devil source report podcast for chris cartman no Furtado, and Chris bradley i'm ethan Ryder. we'll see you guys next time